we, uh, we've been dealing with this uh, topic. There are four great questions in life. Is there a God? If there is, what is this God like? Third question, if, that, if God is like this, then what can I expect from this God? And now we're in this section on the fourth question. What can I expect from God? What can I expect? And last week, I uh, tried to kind of start with the, the issue about how that even in the New Testament, uh, we find that people have expectations uh, that aren't correct. Uh, John the Baptist being perhaps maybe the most, um, uh, most obvious, most powerful one to me, who was the one who identified Jesus, said, this is he of whom I've said that's greater than I. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. And this is the one of whom I saw the Spirit descend and all of these things. Yet life has a way of beating the expectations right out of us. And so by Matthew 11, having been in prison for a while, John the baptizer says these incredible words. Are you the coming one or should we look for somebody else? Why? Because, Jesus, you're not acting the way we expected. How many of us would have to say that that's been one of the great journeys in our life, that God sometimes doesn't act the way we expect him to? Or we are, maybe more accurate is the way we tell him to. Anybody done that? Yeah. Not just the way I expect. I say, hey, you need to do this, right? You know, you, you get a lot of help here. Uh, and so that idea of expectations. And so if you're interested in that, we, uh, we uh, have some ideas on that. And really this, this matter of, of reasonable expectations, what can I reasonably expect from God? What, what is it the scriptures tell me about this? And uh, it, it reminds me at least of an incident in my life uh, some years ago uh, because I work at a university and uh, they uh, make you go get other degrees. So I was working on another degree. Of course, I always said that what we really need is more professors that have less degrees and more temperature. <laughs> you with me? <clears throat> have you ever had a, you ever had a professor who didn't have any temperature? You know, you think, man, oh man, you are smart, but you are boring. So anyway, I, I had to go back to school, and uh, so I was pursuing this degree, and um, uh, it was a fairly uh, significant degree I was pursuing, and so. Uh, I get my paperback. I, I worked in a modular thing where I would read eight or nine books, write eight or nine papers, go to class for a week for nine hours a day, study all night in the library, then get back and have 60 days to finish a project. A lot of fun. And uh, Becky and I figured out at one point, there were two weeks in October, I was out of school. And uh, so uh, I, I write this paper. And what was interesting was uh, it was in an area that I had really trained in, in my master's work in inductive Bible study. That was kind of my area. Um, it, at the seminary I went to, Asbury, you had to take two inductive Bible study classes, so I took nine, and, you know, why not? And uh, so I felt pretty good that I expected that, you know, I do pretty good on this. You know, I'm, I, I'm, I've done this before. I mean, I'm not arrogant. I wasn't the guy I'm working with, a Ph.D. world-renowned Old Testament scholar, and so I was, I, you know, I, I, I figured I could, you know, hold, hold my own in terms of the project. So anyway, uh, a few weeks later, I have to, do, have to do it, get the paper back, and there's a big letter on that paper called a C. And I thought, uh, I know a little bit about this. Uh, I immediately went on academic probation. That's a lot of fun. First class, first rattle out of the box. I walked up to the dean that day and said, do you want me to resign today or tomorrow? Which one is it? Because obviously I'm an idiot. Because I expect that I can do this. So I looked through the paper, and there's one mark on it. One. Now, I grade papers all the time, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm known as the sheriff, but 
I wouldn't give you a C. You wouldn't earn a C. I don't give grades. I record them. You would earn a C. So I look at it and I think, this doesn't make sense to me. And so I uh, had a friend of mine, because the professor also said, I never could determine what passage of Scripture you're dealing with. I thought, hmm. So I gave it to a friend of mine who's also in the school. And I said, would you read this and tell me if you can determine? I wasn't trying to play it. I said, see if you can tell. So he comes back and tells me, yeah, this is the passage you were dealing with. And I said, hmm, you could figure this out. But this guy can't, who's a Ph.D. tenured professor that I'm having to go up against. So I'm thinking to Becky, this could not, this might not go well. (laughs) He's tenured. That means he will not lose his job unless, you know, he robs a bank or something. Uh, so I make a phone call and I said, I need to talk to you about this paper. It's at the seminary I went to. It's 850 miles from here. And I said, I'm going to come see you because I don't want to talk over the phone. I want to see you. And uh, so I make the appointment, make the plan, get to get right out of Lexington, Kentucky. And I sat down and I just said to him, Dr. So-and-so, for fear that anybody might be related to him. <laughs> Uh, I said, I don't understand this grade, and I, I need you to help me. And I said, and again, I said, I'm dealing with a tenured PhD who could just tell me jump in the lake, and that's it. And so I said, I, I don't understand this. I expected to make a better grade, you know. And then they said this. Well, to be honest with you, that always worries me when people say that. <laughs> Doesn't it you? Have you not been before? He said this to me, literally. To be honest with you, I didn't read it. And I'm saying to myself, freeze your face, 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 freeze your face. Really? I mean, like, I did, I, I, I did belie myself. I went, oh, <laughs> oh, well, I, I can understand why you, I was trying to be gentle. I was trying to be courteous. And I said, I, I, I guess I can understand now why you couldn't figure out what passage I was dealing with. Because you didn't read it. <clears throat> and he goes, yeah, yeah. He said, I think that's probably it. He said, i tell you what I'm going to do for you, Cliff. I'm going to reread it. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I said. Inside. I didn't say that. I went, you mean read it? <clears throat> yeah, that's exactly. What, I didn't say that. I went, okay. I mean, I'm, I'm vibrating, you know. <laughs> Because I'm thinking I'm on academic probation. The guy never did his job. I expected him to do his job if I'm going to do mine. You know, that's life, isn't it? Sometimes people don't live up to our expectations or our expectations are out of whack like we looked at last week. What do you expect from God? What do you expect from him? I mean, this thing is real. It's the way we live. Do you have these expectations of God that are biblically informed or whatever? And do you have those in such a way that can live out, if you will, this question. What can I expect from God? So I want to ask us to look at some material here for a bit. Um, I'm going to ask, if you will, to turn in your Bibles, your table of contents, and go to Romans 8. And I want to um, give a disclaimer or a warning. We're going to be all over the place. (laughs) Okay, so get ready. Uh, Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I was going to kind of wait till the end of class on that one. That's what you call setting it up, using it throughout to create tension in the classroom, and at the end of the lesson, you bring it back. So now you ruined it for me, Doug. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, he actually did. Uh, to to my um, uh, joy, uh, took me off probation instantly, and then uh, could go on. So yeah, he did. So, <laughs> uh, so in this this matter about what can I expect from God, I'm going to ask you to go to Romans eight here just for a second, or not for a second. We're we're going to hang out here. Um, in, 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 in reading uh, through this or thinking through some of this material, I, I got to thinking about, is there a place or an area where there are lots of topics or ideas about what we can expect from God in the Christian life? And my mind, I just, you know, t- just goes to Romans 8 uh, for several reasons. Um, James Montgomery Boyce, who was a, a wonderful pastor at, for, at the 10th Presbyterian in uh, Philadelphia for a year, said this, that Romans 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, that's quite a statement, isn't it? That you, some of you might argue with that. You know, you might say, well, I think 1 Corinthians 13 is or Hebrews 11. But, but James Montgomery Boyce said he believed that Romans 8 was the greatest chapter in the Bible and that it distills and delineates uh, the Christian life in such clarity that uh, it, it deserves that title. Yeah, maybe so. Uh, John Stott, maybe some of y'all have read of him. Uh, John Stott said that this is the greatest chapter in all the Bible because it begins with no condemnation and ends with no separation. That's an interesting way to look at Romans 8. It, it begins with no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it ends with there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And so I, I want us to look at this uh, for a matter of, of time. Now, I want to I show you something here uh, real quick. I, I, I fear to do this because it's technology, um, but I'm going to do it anyway um, because I can. Because we're not connected to the Internet. Isn't that great? We've been having troubles with the Internet, again, because the devil fell right into it. Maybe this will work. Talk among yourselves. Talk about lunch. Something. Somebody sing a song. It's not going to work. Well, let me just tell you then. Um, um, I had a picture of my house uh, on Google Maps because Google knows everything we're doing. I think I was brushing my teeth on that day. It looks like I was there. Uh, there's a map or there's a, there's a picture of my house. And it's really tight. And uh, I, took, I got the picture. It's really tight. And I would ask anyone in here to say, how do you get to my house? If you looked at that picture, if you looked at that, that, that shot right there of my house, you'd probably say, unless you've been to my house, some of you have, I don't know. Because I need to what? I need to what? Expand it out. What? Why is that? Why need to expand it out, the picture? Huh? No points of reference. Uh, no, no landmarks. Uh, you know, here's just a house and a street with a name on it. And there's no point of reference. I don't know, is it on the north side of town? Is it on the south side of town? On the east side of the west? That, that you'd have to span it out, okay? You'd have to span it out to say, I've got to, I've got to get a bigger point of reference. Now, now, I use that example in my classes for this. This is what we call in biblical studies context. Where does something lie in the passage? Where does something lie in the scope of the the book? And so I want to look at Romans 8, but I want to say a couple of things. Number one is that really Romans 8 
this may be too strong a statement. But Romans 8 would be difficult to understand if you don't understand the argument of Romans 5, 6, and 7. It would be very difficult to understand what Paul is up to uh, if you don't read Romans 5, 6, 7, and then 8. It's, it's like this. I mean, some of y'all read books. I, I uh, uh, talk to people. I don't, read, uh, I don't read fiction because it's not true, right? So forget it. Um, but some of you that read fiction, that's okay. If you're like that, that's all right. If you want to read untrue stuff, you know, um, that's okay. You know, if you want to do that, it's all right. Uh, but, but here's this. People say, well, I have trouble understanding the Bible. Well, read, read a fiction book like you read the Bible. Read the last page first. And then the next day, read somewhere in the middle of it. And then read something two-thirds through. And like, I don't understand this book. Why? It's not the way they're written. You have to read the book through. The Bible's the same way. It's a piece of literature that, that if you don't, and I don't read it through, it's not just a bunch of one-liners, you know, like Henny Youngman, take my wife, please, you know. Um, some of y'all don't know who that is, but uh, some of y'all are Christians. You don't watch that kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, but it's not just a bunch of one-liners. And people always say, well, you took it out of context. And I want to say, well, what kind? I'm trying to teach you just a little bit here about Bible study. There's literary context. There's historical context. There's thematic context. So there are lots of different kinds of context here. And in this particular place we are, there has to be, I think, some accounting for this from the standpoint of what can I expect from God? Notice here, I'm going to read it here. We're going to go. We're just going to work through four verses today, the theoretically. And uh, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now, might underline that, that, that word there suggests something about time as opposed to the past. At least in some sense, there is now well, what has been previous has to be accounted for. So we'll look at that. So there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh so that, uh, those are important words. You know, I, I'm kind of trying to emphasize the way the argument goes or the way the logic of this thing kind of starts working its way out. So that, or this has occurred, these matters are declared, these truths are facts, so that, what? The requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, I just tell you, we're going to spend several weeks. We're going to work through this whole chapter because there's a huge concern I have here or a huge area about the matters, if you will, of what can I expect from God based on what Romans 8 tells us. So I'm going to be moving back and forth some between Romans 5, 6, 7 to 8 because all of these statements here, I'm going to suggest to you, all, all of these comments or thoughts here are previously suggested or previously dealt with issues. That if you don't understand it, if you don't have that in your mind, that this then becomes just some ideas. You go, what, what does that have to do with it? So we're going to be going back and forth. So here we go on our outline. Here we go. Number one, what can I expect from God is the means of freedom. What, what can I expect from God? And it seems like one of the things here that Paul is 
suggesting, he said, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is this idea of freedom. There is no condemnation for those, well, here, look at the markers here, in Christ. In Christ. Notice there, not Christ in you, you in Christ. I've said, I think this is Paul's understanding of the Christian life. It's not Christ in you, it's you in Christ. It occurs over 200 times throughout the New Testament that Paul is, or 64 times, sorry, 64 times that Paul says you're in Christ. And I've suggested that this new means of freedom that we have is because it's not that Jesus is just in our life, it's that we're in his life. He's invited us into that. So God has given us new life in Christ. So there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now, just think about this for a second. Does that mean before we were in something? For those who are in Christ, suggest there are some who are not, right? So where, from Romans, would Paul say you can either be in Christ or you can be in, huh? Sin, the world, yeah. Those are typical, I think, responses. In the world or in sin. But Paul, in chapter 5, makes a pretty strong case that there's this other place to be. It's called in Adam. Adam. Notice back here in chapter 5. I told you we're going to be all over the place. Just hold on, okay? In chapter uh, 5, verse 12, it said, Therefore, just as though sin entered the world through one man, and death spread to all men because all men sinned. Verse 13, for until the law was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Now look at that. The likeness of the offense of Adam. Who is Adam? Last part of that verse. Huh? No, no. Who, what does it say there? Who, what is, who is Adam? Huh? Who is a type of him who is to come. Who's that? Christ. Who's Adam? He's, he's a type. Now, the Greek word tupos here, or uh, uh, tupos, is the idea of an outline. He's the type or the prototype or the model, if you will. Not really the model. Jesus, but, but the idea of a model of something that's coming. So, so Paul has laid down that that Adam is not just some historical event or some historical person. He's a person who is an existence of life, who is the type or the model or the example of the one who's coming. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, Jesus is called the second Adam, right? The second Adam. So, so this understanding of freedom, meaning that we have now through Jesus Christ, that we are in Christ, as opposed to, if you will, in Adam. That's a big deal in Paul's understanding and thinking. This is in some sense the idea, if anyone, 2 Corinthians 5, I told you we're going all over the place, so just, I told somebody last night, I said, get prepared. We're just, I'm, we're just going all over the place. Because this is a theme that's throughout Paul's writing. But in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he's what? New creation. Not new creature. The Greek word katesis is creation. 
creation. He is, she is, new creation. There's a new creation now. The old creation is in Adam. It's dying. It's had the death penalty put on it. We'll see here in a minute where God condemns sin in the flesh. That, that the old life is in Adam. It's sometimes called the flesh. Human power, human ability, human effort, human strength. That's, that's not the Christian life. That's the Christian life that I grew up in, and it's called the try-harder version. Did you have that one? I mean, it's just you try harder. And Paul says, no, wait a minute. There's freedom here because we're in Christ. Now watch this again. Go to chapter, go to chapter six. The same idea in Christ or in Adam. Romans six. I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, and Paul is writing about, by the way, it must be comfortable here because I'm getting hot. Right. Okay. It feels better, doesn't it? I told you, I told you, I talked to him. I sent a couple of emails and said, get this place warmed up because I got a couple of people that are after me. So, I, you know, can't can't afford that, man. I'm telling you, I had some people looking at me like, of course, what it was, they were frozen. Right. They were frozen. Um, that, that this idea that there's freedom when you're in Christ Jesus through faith in him. Now, watch this in six. Paul's been working again out of five and saying, uh, uh, therefore, verse four, we've been buried with him through baptism. So as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united, verse five, with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we'll be united in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified. Um. I hope you have a footnote there because that word means what? You have a footnote in your Bible? Study Bible, huh? The old man. The word there is anthropos and it is a singular noun. Knowing that our old man. I'm telling you, now every Bible is a translation or an interpretation. My concern there is that this has now caused us to interpret this individually instead of collectively. And so people get saved and they still have habits and they still have trouble. And they thought, I thought my old man died. He did. Life in Adam is dead. Not you. You're still alive. You're working and learning, growing in Christ. But this word is our old man and it's singular. Now, what's interesting in, at least I'm not trying to sound arrogant or smarty, Smart alecky here. How do you spell? I don't have to spell that. Anyway, that word, our old man, if you went back to five, through one man, sin entered the world. And through one man, life. We know that through one man, the transgressions went to all. All that language in five is one man, one man, one man, one man, one man, one man. Now, don't think with me a second. Paul, Paul isn't just, you know, dr driving things in the ground here. He's saying, wait a minute, I've, you, you're, you're right. I got you figured out here, right? One man, Adam. He's dead. His life is dead. You can live in it if you want to, but it's dead. That's why he's saying in Christ, there's no condemnation. Because we've been delivered from the life in 
Adam. This is a foundational understanding of Paul's teaching in chapter 8. That this is where the devil and the world has lied to us and made us think, we got it. We, I have to do that. I'm human. No, you're in Christ. There are resources, and we're going to see it here. There's resources and power available to us because we are in Christ, not in Adam. Some of the language Paul will use about life in Adam, it's called life in the flesh. Sarkos is the Greek word. It's life in the flesh. What is it? It's life depending on human power. It's life depending on human ability. Now, you don't have to agree with this because, I mean, you know, we, I, was, I was talking to Becky this morning on the way to church. She was helping me with my notes. You know, she was, don't say that. No. <laughs> Let me try to make this um, as practical as I can. Andrew Murray, some years ago, I wrote, read a book that he said this, and I think this is part of this, this. When you say in Adam, human power, human ability, I'm depending on my intellect, I'm depending on my, my personality, I'm depending on my, my abilities. Mur Murray said this, that kind of life in Adam is what Paul calls life in the flesh, depending on human. And, and it said this, and it bothered me, because it, it makes it real practical with this, is that maybe the clearest indication of my dependence on Adam or my dependence on the flesh is my prayer life or lack of it. Who do I really depend on each day? Who do I think can get me through the day? Cliff? Adam? Do, 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 I, do I have supreme confidence in the flesh because I'm too busy to pray? You know, I had to watch the news this morning. <laughs> I just, it's just been a, it's been a grinding thought in my brain for years. It may be the clearest indication of my living in Adam or the flesh is my prayer life. I'm not saying that to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to say that for us to face it. Do we have confidence in Jesus and the Spirit? Or do we have confidence in Adam and the flesh? It's an important question, I think. So our life is in Christ or in Adam. In Adam, you have a certain set of resources. Your intellect, your personality, your effort, your work, your, your brains, your, your connections, the people you know. Or in Christ, you have these resources. His Spirit the power of the Spirit, the resources of heaven, that that idea of that we have this. Now, I think I'm going to move this on. Like, do you have a question? You know, I was going to do soccer, did, but I think the Internet has died here someday. Does this make sense? I know. Okay, you do? Okay, I'll do that later. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, he's asking a question here because it says it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Paul is reasoning in chapter 5 that until the law came, there was sin in the world, but not after the likeness of Adam. What's the difference? The word there Paul uses is sin, hamartia. 
He said, there's sin in the world. There are people missing the mark. Missing the mark, missing the mark. That's the word like, you know, shooting a bow and arrow. You're, you're trying, but you're missing it. He said, there was sin in the world <clears throat> before Adam. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> but not in the likeness of Adam. <clears throat> Adam's sin, when Paul works through five, is the Greek word trespass. And it's the Greek word parabasis. <clears throat> and trespass or transgression is different than missing the mark. The word means this. There's a line drawn in the sand and you step over it. This isn't missing the mark. This isn't accidentally, or not accident. <clears throat> this isn't coming short. This is, I know you said, don't eat that fruit. I'm going to eat it. So it wasn't <clears throat> that they broke one of the Ten Commandments of the law. They broke a direct command from God. And Paul is using those terms. And if you read carefully in your, in your English translation, you'll see the word sin occur, and then you'll see the word trespass or transgression. It's a different word. So, so, <clears throat> so it is a willful there was no law before Adam. So he didn't have the Ten Commandments, but he had a direct command from God that said, don't do this, and he did it. So he's saying <clears throat> there wasn't that kind of sin <clears throat> until Moses came. From Adam <clears throat> to Moses, there's just hamartia. <clears throat> People are just dying because of missing the mark. After Moses now, <clears throat> there's parabasis. There is trespass or transgression. Is that answering? <clears throat> okay. Deliberately, yeah. And again, in, in the Greek New Testament, those, and again, I don't know how translation, uh, New American Standard translates it, sin and then trans transgression. I don't know how ESV does it. But this is where, <clears throat> commercial, this is where when we study the Bible, we need what we call a standard formal equivalent translation of the Bible. That's the New American Standard or the English Standard Version. Those translations are based on what we call the standard formal equivalent translational theory, word for word. Now, the other versions read nice, but sometimes they'll miss some of these very important distinctions. Yeah. New American Standard or English Standard Version. So this matter of being in Christ, I, I just want to get this in your mind. Paul's understanding is there are two realities now. We can depend on Adam, <clears throat> the flesh, human power, human ability, our connections in the world, all of that stuff, or we're in Christ. Now, in Christ, there is no condemnation. Why? <clears throat> Watch this again. We're back in 7 or 8. <clears throat> in, in chapter 8, <clears throat> you'll notice um, there are these little words, <clears throat> uh, and I get goofed up. I got a couple of English people here, so I'm a little nervous, but I think they're conjunctions. <laughs> in look at verse 2. Four. <clears throat> look at verse 3. Four. Look at verse 6. I'm sorry, four. I'm sorry. Verse 2, four. Verse 3, four. Verse 4. So that. Those are important terms. Because the word for, <clears throat> the word for, always is a signaling Support, evidence, reason. Here it is. <clears throat> Jesus loves me, this I know. That's the assertion, the allegation. How does it go? For, what's happening? Here's the evidence. Here, <clears throat> here's the evidence. For, the Bible tells me so. So how do you know this, Cliff? So, so when you see the word for in Scripture, you need to be alert to the fact the writer is now providing evidence. 
So what is it, Paul, here of saying there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ? He's already picked it up about Adam. For he says this. Now he's going to pick up something else. Not only we're not, uh, there's no condemnation because we're in Christ. Watch this. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free. From what? What does it say there? The law of sin and death. Here, <clears throat> here's, and I had a terrible illustration I'm not going to use. The reason there's freedom, there's a new law in town. I only watched Blazing Saddles when they cleaned it up and put it on AMC. (laughs) The new law in town. I can't can't watch R-rated movies. I just won't do it. But but I, I thought about, you know, there really is. Look here. The law of the Spirit of life has set you free from what? The what? The law... Of sin and death. What's that? See, he's saying there's there's freedom here. We have freedom. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's there's a new law in town. What's the name of the law there? What does it say there? Verse 2. What's the name of the law there? The spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And it is contrasted to what? The law of sin and death. What's that? What's that? I'll tell you what it is. Look at verse 3. For what the law could not do. Weak as it was through the flesh or human power. God did, sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering, He condemned sin in the flesh. This is a fascinating move here by Paul. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free now. There's no condemnation. And it set me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do. Do you ever think about that? What is it that Paul is referring to? What is it that the law can't do? Yep, can't save you. We know that from Galatians 3. But in context here, in context here, the law cannot deal with sin. You know where that is? Chapter 7. Let me let me let me have you consider this. Look back at chapter 7. In 5, Paul dealt with Adam. In 6, he dealt with Adam. In 7, he starts dealing with the law. When he says this, actually starts at 6.15, he said, What shall we say then? Do we keep on sinning because we're not under the law? May it never be. Then he starts in 7, Or don't you know, brethren, I'm speaking of those who know the law. The law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. What has Paul said has happened to us? We died through baptism. What do you say in six? Well, you know, <clears throat> we've been buried with him in baptism. We'll be raised in life. So the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. He gives an illustration here. For the married woman is bound to her husband while he's living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning her husband. So then if her husband is living, she's joined to another, she shall be called an adulteress. 
But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so she's no longer an adulteress, though she's joined another one. Therefore, again, here's a big important word. My brethren, you were made to die to what? The law. Through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another in him who raised him from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit. For while we, now this is where again, where verbs are important. Verse 5, while we were in the flesh. What does that mean? Adam. We were dependent on Adam. We were looking to Adam. <clears throat> we thought if we could work hard enough, if we could do enough, we could be free. When we were in and the flesh, the sinful passions were aroused, how? By the law. Let, let me say something to you. <clears throat> we're going to keep working. <clears throat> this chapter, in my opinion, you don't have to agree with me, thoughts and opinions of this church are not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, church elders. This chapter has nothing, well, let me say that. This chapter is not a digression of Paul's failure as a Christian. It's been completely misunderstood. Completely. This is a chapter about the failure of the law to deal with sin. You start with the wrong question, you're going to get the wrong answer. Becky scares me to death sometimes she's on the phone. She'll be talking, oh, really? I'm going, what is it? What is it? What is it? You know, I got to know right now. <clears throat> what? What? Oh, really? And, and when did that? Oh, oh, I'm, I can't, I'm not hearing the conversation. What, what, what? She'd go, okay, thanks. What happened? Uh, somebody had a baby. What? She was going, oh, oh, really? Sometimes we read the Bible and we don't know what the conversation is. You got it. And if we don't get the other side of the conversation, we start drawing all kinds of incorrect conclusions. This chapter is about the failure of the law to deal with sin. This chapter is that the law of sin and death. Notice what he says. What does the law do to sinful passions in verse 5? It inflames them. It wakes them up. Now this again... Sidebar, it's why they wanted to kill Paul. The belief in Judaism at that day is that human beings are born with two impulses. They're called Yetzers. They taught, in fact, there is no doctrine of original sin or, I'm sorry, uh, sinful nature in Judaism. They don't believe it. They don't believe people are born with a sinful nature. Never has been taught. It's not part of Judaism or rabbinical teaching. Nowhere to be found. Nowhere. They taught that people are born with two impulses called the Yetzer Ahav, which is the a, a bad, a bad Yetzer, bad impulse, and you're born with the Yetzer Tov, the good one. And life is just a series of just give in to the good one and you're good and give in to the bad one, you're bad. And it's just a, a constant battle. But the rabbis taught this. That God gave a gift that would break the balance of power. You want to guess what that was? The law. That's what will break the balance of power. This is what made the Pharisees so mean and rigid and difficult to deal with. 
because they believed that if they just had the law, it would keep that Yetzer Tov in good shape and be able to win it. And Paul says here, no, 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 you got it all backwards. The law inflames sin. Here's another verse on this. Keep your finger there. Go to table of contents. Go to first, uh, 2 Corinthians 15. I always hear this at funerals, but I never hear them go all the way with it. <clears throat> They're not 15 chapters. Huh, that was a trick. <clears throat> that was a trick, wasn't it? It's 1 Corinthians 15. I told you that. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> I was just checking to make sure you saw that. That was just a test. You know, Teachers do that on occasion. You know, we're just checking you all out. <clears throat> I've heard part of this... <clears throat> verse at funerals, but I never heard all of it, and I've never heard it in context when it says this. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 15, 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is what? The law. You ever hear that at a graveside? No, I haven't heard it. They just say, well, the sting of death is sin. Oh, death, but... Praise God. Wait, Paul's laying something down here. Listen, let me tell you what empowers sin. Law. It arouses it. It empowers it. So Paul's saying this new law in town. Here's on your handout here. I should have got there before. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so if that's the case, if that's the case, what is the function of the law? Because in Romans 7, 7, after all this statement... <laughs> Here's a, here's a logical point in 7. Well, if the law arouses sin and we're no longer in the flesh and all that, in verse 7, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Paul says, no, may it never be. Well, then what is it, Paul? If you go from 7 to 12, you'll realize that the function of the law is simply to identify sin. Paul said that's the only function it's got. He said, I wouldn't know what coveting was if it wasn't for the law. It doesn't heal anything, doesn't fix anything. I've heard people say all the time, we should post the Ten Commandments at different places. And I go, why? It's not going to make anybody live any better, right? Yeah, it could be worse. The only possible function for that would be people might be aware of their failure. That's what Paul says. It, it doesn't say, it just makes you aware. It isn't going to help you. You can memorize them, post them on your forehead. The law's not going to deal with sin. That's why Paul calls it the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, God did. So, so in 7 to 12, it's, here's the function. Go, go read it later. Here's how the law functions. It reveals sin. It's a great detector. I broke my hand a few years ago and, and uh, didn't want to go to the doctor because they have needles there, uh, but I, I just couldn't use it. I mean, it's like this, you know, trying to type like that. I said, it'll be better. It'll be better. <clears throat> you know, Becky, it looks better, don't you think? She just, <clears throat> yeah, I'm just like, you know. So I, I did feel better when the doctor said, now, Cliff, what you have is a boxer fracture. It made me feel manly, you know. He said, well, we're going to brace it here, and then we're going to put it, if it doesn't, we'll have to put a pin in it. And we, so we put on this x-ray machine. And it actually, see, right there, there it is. It showed me, you know, there's the break. You know, I was trying to have some dramatic start because it's a big bar fight or something, you know. I was playing softball, and 
was tagging my sister-in-law. <laughs> kind of bent my hand back. But I didn't tell him that. <clears throat> yeah, I was clearing the Florida bar one time. You know. uh, <clears throat> he looked at me and goes, yeah, right. Uh, <clears throat> that <clears throat> that x-ray didn't heal anything. What did he do? Reveal. Listen, write this down. The law does not heal, it reveals. That's all it does. It doesn't heal. It just reveals. So the failure of the law, or I'm mean, sorry, the function of the law, <clears throat> is that that's all you can expect from it. I'm, I'm going to have to hurry here in a second because we're going we're gonna, to, we just got to keep digging here a little bit. Second here <clears throat> in that section is the failure of the law. That's actually verses uh, 13 following to the end. The failure of the law. It's where people get hung up. Paul says, the good I want to do, I can't, and the evil I don't want to do, I end up doing. Now, there, there's a couple of issues here, we, contextually. If Paul, like I showed you back in 6.15 said, shall we continue to sin because we're not under the law? May it never happen, for we, sin shall not have mastery over you. That's what he said, starting at 650. Sin will not master you anymore. So when you get to 7, and he says, the good that I want to do, I can't, and the evil I don't want to do, I do. Does that sound like mastery to you? It does to me. Sounds like he's out of control. He's being mastered by sin. So we got two options here. Paul is contradicting himself within a chapter. That's a possibility. He's absolutely contradicted himself within a chapter of the Bible. Or, there's something else going on here. And it is Paul declaring what the experience is of trying to deal with sin based on law. I know what the good is. I want to do it. I concur with the law. Notice what he said. I know that the law is spiritual. I'm in the flesh. I'm, what I'm doing, I don't understand. I'm practicing things I don't want. I agree that the law is good, but I have no good thing within me. Is that Paul as a Christian? Listen, stop. Hold it. Be careful. If it is, he is a schizophrenic Christian. So how do we account for this? Here, I'm going to make a suggestion here. We're going to come back to this because this chapter, I told you, I'm going to be all over. This, this is the greatest chapter of the Bible. When Paul says, the good that I'm doing, I don't understand. All those are in present tense, right? And that's what gives people trouble. Or that's why people assume, okay, that's Paul's. You know, isn't it good to know that Paul struggled just like we do? Well, if he did, he's absolutely schizophrenic in a chapter. Or here's the possibility. The present tense in Greek, like English has a function. There's the simple present, the ingressive present. We call it in Greek the gnomic present. There are all kinds of presents. N not present. Present. I'm from Texas. Not pre uh, present, not presents. Yeah, present. P -R -E yeah, that. that here we go. <clears throat> okay. There are all kinds of present <laughs> tense. One of them is historic present. 
And it takes a past event, throws it into the present to intensify the dialogue. If you look in the front of your Bible, if you have a study Bible, you'll see this all over the place. You go to Matthew sometime in 4 when it says, Jesus walking by the Sea of Galilee. Is that a present tense? Is Jesus walking right now? They take it out of the past, put it in the present to intensify it. It's used throughout the Gospels, if you will just be careful and notice. It is not a done deal to say because these are present tenses. This is Paul's present experience. It makes more sense to say what he said back in 6, that these present tenses are historic present in order to intensify to say, this is what my life was like when I was under the law. You have to deal with it grammatically. And so when, when, when we look at it and say, well, that's just the Christian life, I say, can't be. Now, here's the crazy thing. People ask me at times, so what are you saying, Cliff? <clears throat> so I'm trying to figure it out. But Paul calls the law the law of sin and death. And notice back in 8, <clears throat> what the law could not do. Can't deal with sin. So is <clears throat> 7 the Christian life? No. But it can be. Here's how. Try to deal with sin based on law and watch what happens. Try to deal with sin based on Adam human power and watch what happens. Can I get a witness on this? <laughs> you go down like a big rock. Paul is not suggesting that. He's saying there's a new law in town. And it's the law of the life in the spirit in Christ Jesus. And so this is nowhere consistent with Christian living. It's life under the law dealing with sin. But Christians can get in it because we forget or fail to recognize that the Christian life is life in Jesus Christ. Life in the Spirit. This is what you can expect from God. A new life, a new way, a new power, a new existence. It's not by me or you. It's life in the Spirit. Let me show you one more thing real quick. I just want to draw your attention to this. <clears throat> I think Paul is so seriously careful about this. Watch this. In 14 to the end, uh, <clears throat> when he says this, what I'm doing, or first of all, I know that the law is good. What I'm doing, I don't understand. This is Paul's use of the law with sin with his mind. My mind and the sin with the law is no match. I want to walk you through this. Verse, verse 16. But I do the very thing I don't want to do. I agree with the law. So now I'm no longer doing it, but sin which dwells me. For I know that nothing dwells with it, for the willing is present. You know what this is? This is Paul's also using his mind earlier with sin and the law. Now he's using what part of his personality? His will. The willing is present, but I can't pull it off. Watch this. Verse 22, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner man. What's that part of human personality? Emotion. Look at that. Mind, 
will, and emotion. With the law are no match for sin. One of my professors said this. this he's taken the human personality apart right here. And saying, you want to try to deal with sin with the law? Go ahead. Try to use your mind. Learn enough. Get smart enough. Get wise enough. Study the Bible more and watch what happens. Okay? You got a strong will. Just get that will cranked up. The willing is present. I've got the will to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing. And use the law, you're going to fall like a hot rock. Third, I joyfully, I love, oh, I joyfully concur with the law. I'm emotionally invested. Work. Paul is driving this thing in the ground. There's a new law. The old law, if a Christian or a non-Christian, cannot deal with sin. That's why there's condemnation with the law. Now in Christ, there is no condemnation. For the law of the spirit of life has set me free from the law of sin and death. So here's the application. i got to let you all out of here. here. Here's the application this week. Okay? I didn't write it down. I've got it here. <clears throat> In your struggle with temptation this week, and you're going to. I know a couple of y'all are so holy you don't think you will, but you will. Yeah, I know you will. In your struggle with temptation this week, I want... All of us, when we do this, to refuse to think that my power and my ability or my will or my strength is any match. That the answer is to rely upon the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Don't try harder this week. Receive what your inheritance is that God he, you can expect him to give this to you. The spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Quit trying harder. Quit trying harder. And receive what you can expect from Christ. The spirit of the life, the spirit of life in Christ. Now we're going to keep working with it because there's lots more about this. What does it mean to live in the Spirit? What, what does it mean? Paul's going to work that out. But he's got to, first of all, disconnect us from the law of sin and death. So I'm not asking you to try harder. Paul's not asking you to try harder. He's asking you that you can expect that in Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life will give you life. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is uh, bigger than us. And... Uh, You've got to take what I've said in some ways so haltingly and cause it to find root in our lives, my life included. Help us in this coming week to resist every temptation to just try harder. To resist every impulse to think if we could just learn more or will more or feel more. Help us to, in utter dependence on you, rely upon the life, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Help us to know we're new. And we've got power and resources that we could never imagine because of this life. We pray this in Jesus' strong name.
Amen.